primary care knowledge boost, summer replay, early diagnosis of cancer. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are re-releasing one of our previous episodes from um, earlier in the year called Early Diagnosis of Cancer. Yeah, it was an episode we did with Dr. Sarah Taylor um, pre-COVID, um, but all the information is really relevant and uh, we had a big discussion about which one we wanted to release and Lisa, what were your thoughts about what we should re-release? So I, my my discussion with Sarah was that um, I had taken a step back to look at all the episodes that we'd released and I'd zeroed in on one of the palliative episodes that we've done in one of the cancer episodes because I thought if we were going to re-release one um, and we had an influence on the practice of healthcare professionals um, out there who are listening, then if we um, managed to make someone die better, then that would be really important. Yeah. Or if we managed to um, pick up an extra diagnosis of cancer early that meant that someone could be treated and didn't have a reduced mortality then that would also be really important yeah and I was talking about those episodes and how they've influenced my practice a year down the line and how much how much of a difference I feel like both both of those things have made to families and patients lives Um, and not long after we released this episode I picked up a quite an early lung cancer um, that I otherwise I don't think I would have if it weren't for this episode so I thought if you scale that up that's amazing (laughs) exactly and so that's how we came down to this one yeah um, and the reason that we're um, we're doing a summer replay is that we've got lots of things going on in the background and we've got a lot of recordings that are happening at the minute that um, mean that there's lots of lovely episodes coming up. Um, but it's just meant that uh, we thought that this was a good time to release one of our old ones while we're sorting all the rest of that stuff out. Yeah. Um, so Sarah can tell you about some of the exciting stuff that's coming. I can, it's true. Um, so we've just recorded an episode with Dr. Rachel Hilton on eczema, um, which was fabulous. And we're trying to cut it down, but it's impossible because it's too good. <laughs> Um, and then we're going to chat to her tomorrow about psoriasis yes um and then after that we've got what have we got after that Lisa? Uh, we've got tingly limbs <laughs> oh yes so um one of our most appreciated episodes this year was the episode with dr matt jones on headaches um, so he is coming back and going to join us to talk about the presentation of tingly limbs, which we're really excited about as well. Yeah, that's going to be yeah. great. Um, and then we've also got one lined up to chat to the pharmacists um, about some of the um, additional roles. Yeah. And oh, we're speaking to Rachel Morris from You're Not a Frog. Um, her absolutely amazing podcast about um, resilience. So she's going to come and talk to us and give us some tips about um, resilience and burnout and things. Yeah, they're fabulous. I've been thoroughly enjoying them over the last few months. Absolutely amazing tips in there. Yeah, lovely. So enjoy. I'm Sarah Taylor and I'm a GP in Manchester in Fallowfield and the Greater Manchester Cancer Early Diagnosis Lead for CIUK. Um, what does your the role involve? Well, I've got a variety of roles. So I work as the I work for the CCG as their cancer lead, um, uh-huh. but I work most of my work is done via Greater Manchester as their early cancer diagnosis lead. So I link in with anything that they're trying to do on a strategic level across GM yeah. to improve the quality of early diagnosis and to tie in with the long term plan. 
Definitely. So they're both quite linked to each other yes, then in a yeah, way. Yeah. Okay. And then I also work as the education, GP education lead for Gateway C, which is online cancer education. Okay. Yes, which I'm sure we're definitely going to be talking about because it's yeah. a lovely yeah. resource. Yeah. So what um, what are the priorities, do you think, in Greater Manchester um, from your perspective with regards to early cancer diagnosis or cancer in general? Well, I think the priority has to be early diagnosis. The long term plan has that we will have be diagnosing 75% of people at stage one and two by 2028. <laughs> That's a hugely ambitious target and if we're going to do that, that's going to take a whole system approach. It's going to take health education, health promotion, GPs, secondary care, patient education everything yeah. uh, and I think it's everybody recognises it's massively ambitious because we were looking at some of the statistics and things around cancer and the UK doesn't do great no um, compared to other countries um, in Europe especially yeah and a lot of that's at stage of diagnosis I think there's a lot of evidence that actually once patients are in the system they get good treatment and do reasonably well but they are being diagnosed late and there's lots of research out there about um, you know how many times people will visit their GP before they come and that varies by cancer. Um, there's obviously problems with patients presenting late because they either don't recognise the symptoms or mm. they don't want to yeah. make an appointment or they just can't get an appointment because it's difficult to access general practice for some people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, like you say, it seems like there's a kind of cohort of different reasons that are kind of working together. So yeah. GP education, patient education is really important. Definitely. Yeah. So what do you think it's important for us to know about early diagnosis in primary care? I think one of the key things to realise is that the 2015 guidelines uh, put the rate at which you should start thinking about referring at a minimum of 3%. Yes. Uh, mm. So actually, that doesn't apply to every symptom. So if you've got a woman with a breast lump, the likelihood of them having cancer is about 10%. But actually, when, if you get to 3% risk, at that point, you should be thinking about referring mm-hmm. and that applies to individual symptoms and combinations of symptoms and that's how the NICE guidelines from 2015 were drawn up. So oh. if you look at the colorectal ones they're quite complicated because yeah. they've got sort of say if you're 40 and you've got this and this or if you're over 60 mm. that's all done on a 3% risk. Ah that makes sense now yeah and I did wonder how they came to that. Yeah it's, all done, it's done, all done on that 3% threshold right. and as I say some of the symptoms so if you've got an abnormal full blood count that suggested leukemia then you know it's much much higher than that yeah. uh, and so there's mm. two two problems with that one is that some people think that we should be looking at a three percent conversion rate from outpatients and that's never <sighs> going to happen because some of the symptoms are higher than that yeah. and the other thing is the number of consultancies say but we only have about 10% pickup rate in clinic. Well, actually, that's what that's you're supposed what you want. to. But yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But I think the, the general feeling is that somewhere between 5 and 10% conversion rate from your two-week wait referrals is about right. Okay. So what do you think we could be doing better then in primary care? From the, the NCDA data, which is the National Cancer Diagnosis data, um, and from we've done quite a lot of work in Manchester on looking at significant events. There are a few things Mm -hmm. that come up recurrently. One is um, groups of patients who don't come very often and recognising symptoms and asking them about things. So young patients um, tend to come far more frequently before they're actually diagnosed because you don't think about it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, And elderly patients who have multiple comorbidities, it's very easy to... uh, assume that their symptoms are due to their comorbidity yeah so one of my favorite patients on gateway c is one of our first patients who's fred who's a 65 year old man with um ex-smoker with copd who comes in and says i've got a cough my wife sent me in and i need some antibiotics and steroids and we sort of work through the scenarios where you think actually 
let's just give him the antibiotics and steroids. Or you say, well, actually, it's it's July. I don't. He doesn't normally exacerbate in July. Let me ask a few more questions. If you ask him enough questions, he'll tell you that he's stopped going out because he's too breathless. He's lost a little bit of weight. And then eventually mm. he says, well, actually, I might have coughed up a little bit of blood. And if you don't ask those questions, you don't get there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very easy to, with particularly with those groups of patients, to not think about it because yeah. no. you're on a different track. Exactly. Yeah. And when they've got something as obvious as the COPD. Yeah. Um, but you're right. The young patients is interesting because a lot of the two-week work guidance doesn't it include doesn't them. Cover, it, no, it doesn't. And and I think um, Richard Roop, who's the Royal College of GPs cancer lead, his mantra is three strikes and you're in. So if a patient comes in three times with a symptom that you can't explain, then you should be thinking about whether there's a serious cause for it. And I sort of think if you go with that on young patients, most young patients don't come in that often, really. And it, and it's difficult, isn't it? You know, there's loads of people who have symptoms that that could have a more serious cause but probably don't yeah and it is so it's not easy yeah it's, it's yeah. you know if it was easy it would be done by computers yes. <laughs> exactly. it's not yeah. so um, and was there anything else that came up yeah i mean i think the, the other things that come up are um safety netting of symptoms so being totally clear with patients as to when you want them to come back mm-hmm. um so there are a couple of patients who i've interviewed for various things one of whom was saying that her gp had said to her, if your rectal bleeding gets worse, come back. Now, it didn't get worse, but it didn't get better. She left it, I think, a year, by which time she'd got stage four bowel cancer. Um, oh. and, and, and it's just that simple wording. She said, you know, she said, I'm a very, she's a very intelligent, very highly educated person who yeah. just said that actually she was just following the rules. And if the rules had been expressed clearly then that would have made a difference Mm -hmm. and similarly another patient with bowel cancer said that if somebody'd asked her how much blood she was passing yeah um she would have said you know was it more or less than a teaspoon she said it would she would have said immediately it's way more than a teaspoon Mm -hmm. and it's just that sort of detailed enough questioning to give you an impact yeah Yeah. i remember um whenever we're doing csa practice and things it being kind of drummed into us to be very clear about when you're asking the red flags whenever you're asking about blood just don't ask about red blood make sure you specifically ask about melina yes because patients won't say that that's blood absolutely it, yeah, yeah it's really important yeah yes i think it's, it's a really difficult yeah. one thinking about my my last gp training year one of my favorite things that my gp trainer told me as well is, is about kind of not getting tripped up with patients own versions of what's happening yes and that really reflects back in the sort of antibiotic steroids you've got 10 minutes they've come to this conclusion often yeah. people are right in, in what conclusions they come to yeah. but it's having that extra bit of kind of going digging um th- and not always yeah. follow- following what they're telling you and i think if you're doing t- if you're talking to people with tiredness i spoke to a lot of young patients with lymphoma um and they were saying that actually the tiredness was different it's not the sort of I'm, I'm, I'm busy at school i'm busy at college i've done they, what they were doing was they were doing the bare minimum they could get away with so they were just about dragging themselves into mm. college um, yep. and doing their days there but they really weren't doing anything else at all and it's that yep. difference between mm. feeling tired and actually it's stopping you doing things and it's so it's just that sort of asking the extra questions on impact on your life rather yeah. than just a, a superficial symptom exactly mm-hmm. we, we've spoken a lot about the common pitfalls when it comes to trying to diagnose cancer early um are there any other common pitfalls that gps i think that one of the things that comes up really commonly is either 
poor interpretation of investigations right. or poor safety netting of investigations. One of the key things to remember is that chest x-rays are really very unreliable. Yeah. Um, you know, that um, up to about 25% will be falsely negative and not show a lung cancer, which yeah. is massively unreassuring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the lung cancer consultants locally just says if you've got any doubts and somebody's at high risk just refer them on yeah. uh, and I think that on the you know on the sort of three percent conversion rate then actually most smokers who've got worse shortening of breath probably warrant the referral yeah, anyway exactly or like your coughs that yes. um, you can't find a reason for and yeah. the chest x-ray is normal don't just accept that the Absolutely. chest x-ray is normal yeah. and there is an, an increase in incidence of non-smokers with lung cancer there was some shocking right. statistic that I read somewhere that if if you took non-smoking lung cancers as a separate disease, it would mm-hmm. still be about fifth in incidence of cancer in the UK. Oh. Not sure that it's about fifth, but it's very high up in that list. Yeah, um, and that's quite worrying yeah. because yeah. actually, I think we all have this idea that it's it's smokers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're right. I'm often reassured if somebody's a non-smoker, especially yes. with a normal chest X-ray yeah. non-smoker. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and do. I think if the symptoms still warrant it, yeah, then you we should be thinking about referring. Right. And the other thing with investigations is the looking at significant events a lot of them come from GPs asking a patient to have an investigation done and either the patient not going and having it done mm-hmm. and nobody really realising or the patient having it done being slightly abnormal, a request for the patient to come in and them not coming back in. Yeah, that worries me a lot, actually, yeah. and I don't know how we can fix that. There is. On EMIS, and I think it's coming onto the other systems as well, there's a safety netting toolkit and right. you can mm. use that to enter how long you want to give the patient to get come back with the results and then once you've got the results if you want to see them afterwards yeah um, and you can get the staff to run searches on it you can you gps can input the data you can use it for things like following up psas as well and so so it's a searchable activity that you can then follow up i think that with the um it, primary care network specification on early cancer diagnosis that's gonna be quite a useful tool yeah so i think most practices are now quite good at making sure that patients have been referred on a suspected cancer referral actually get the appointment and go yeah but the, it's the investigations and when we, when we start to use symptomatic fit um then that's going to be instead of referring a patient yep. and we probably need to be much we more need rigorous to make sure they're doing that it. they actually have it done interesting when you say symptomatic fit what do you right mean? fit is the replacement for the fecal occult bloods yeah oh, oh. okay so yes. symptomatic. so it's the fecal immunochemical testing it's much more accurate than the fobs yes it's been introduced for the screening tests right. so uh, mm-hmm. uh, actually across england i don't it was in Scotland before and I don't know what's happening in Wales if I'm honest and that's a quite a high level of about 120 of blood in the faeces for for symptomatic fit you're looking at a much lower level it's, right. it's about 10 um, that we're mm. using so it basically if you've got a patient who has symptoms of bowel cancer that you, it's sort of so they say low risk but not no risk that you're mm. concerned about and you want to do an investigation so the young patient altered bowel habit mm. um, no bleeding um, maybe and, and not, nothing much else you can do a fit test and that's it's a very accurate right. indicator it's lovely yeah good the other question I just had was about the fits is that in process at the moment it is and again it's a little bit um, variable across the country as to where it's available but every CCG is now trying to get access to it Mm -hmm. Um, and I think within by the end of this calendar year everybody should have access to it because it is it's 
all of the cancer systems are failing their targets at the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the problem is, you know, increasing numbers of referrals, which is good because if we're going to reach targets, we have to. Um, but systems struggling to cope and actually yes, fit yeah. will decrease some of the colorectal referrals. Brilliant. Because you were talking there about some of the different things. We found an article on the BJGP. Yes. And um, that has some really nice bits about the people that you miss and, and who you should be thinking about. And it talked about kind of people who have recurrent infections and that that should flag up like your recurrent chest infections or urine yeah. infections, yes. things like that to yeah. think about it. And I wrote down the other ones. What else did we have? Oh, and you mentioned earlier the infrequent attenders because they don't come often. Um, so when they come, it's probably quite a significant symptom. Yeah, and that's, the, that's where you go for, you know, your three strikes and you're in sort yeah. of. Exactly. Lovely phrase. It is, yes. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, and what was the final one that they mentioned about constant pain? So it, not just your normal musculoskeletal pain, if someone's yeah. coming in with a constant pain to really think about. Yeah, and I think the pain's diagnosis. similar to the um, the tiredness, isn't it? It's, it? it's asking enough questions about the pain to understand that this is something a little bit different. Exactly. And one of the things the National Cancer Diagnosis Audit showed was that patients with myeloma are the group that are most likely to have attended very many times before they're diagnosed mm. and I think that that's it's a difficult one it's hard I think it is one of the harder ones because we did the episode about um, immunoglobulins yes. and myeloma because we find it tricky to to pick them up yeah so um do you have a process or any advice for people who who you see when they've got very non-specific symptoms is there any particular way you deal with it so thinking about like your slight weight loss or I'm just not eating as much things I, mean, like I think that. you have to take a a thorough history and examination and then it's simple investigations yeah. we've got um there's significant funding now across the uk for the rollout of rapid diagnostic centers that where they started off um from the premise of non-specific symptoms clinics so they're mm. very much based on those patients where okay. you're thinking this patient's got something i'm worried about but i don't know what it what it yeah. is mm-hmm. um, and, f- and we've been i've been quite heavily involved in the design of those in greater manchester and we came up with a list of exclusion criteria so a list of things that you should be checking your patient doesn't have before you refer them so things like um, bleeding from any orifice i think if you don't ask women about postmenopausal bleeds they don't always mention it yes so you can miss things there if you don't ask clearly about things like malign erectile bleeding yep. so there's a whole list of investigations there's a suggested list of examination which you know it would obviously involve checking for lymph nodes checking for a spleen which you know if a patient's got a chronic leukemia they might have an enlarged spleen um, mm-hmm. And so look, checking for all those things. And then we've got, there's a list of suggested investigations. So you don't want to be sending a patient to a two-week weight clinic who's got celiac disease or yes. a young patient with um, enlarged glands who's got glandular fever. So mm-hmm. you'd include all of those things. You should always think about cl- including an HIV screen. Yes. Um, and then so the tumour markers, CA125 and PSA. Yeah. Um, maybe doing a chest x-ray. I think a chest x-ray is a reasonable thing to do, but but to have caution yeah have caution I think if you've got somebody with weight loss and they've got no respiratory symptoms then a chest x-ray is a reasonable thing to do to help you exclude the lung cancer yeah and 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 then fit the symptomatic fit would also probably come into that I think that's a reasonable thing to do and then when you get them back obviously if you've got an anemic patient you're going to do something about it if the tumour markers are raised the other thing then to think start thinking about is the raised platelets which is another Mm. 
very complicated and poorly. And I, and I did look up the figures for that, which I just need to... Um, yeah, thrombocytosis is, um, is a risk marker of cancer with 11.6% in males and 6.2% in females of any raised platelets having Cancer. A risk of cancer. Wow. So yeah. that's higher, much higher than your three percent risk. Much higher, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the work that Willie Hamilton's done it says that any raised platelets are significant. Yeah. So anything above your upper limit of normal is significant. Yes. And it's the, the high risk cancers: uh, lung, endometrial, gastroesophageal, and colorectal. Yes, that's so, the Lego C. Yeah, Lego C. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and and so I think that if you see those, you have to then go back through and do your systemic questioning and your other tests and examination but it is a difficult one because although that risk has been raised there's no clear referral pathway anywhere for doing it and so then what do you do when you don't find anything and i think that will probably come into the role of the rapid diagnostic centers and the non-specific symptoms if you've got a concern brilliant that sounds good so where um is that in process at the minute yeah so the it's a four-year project and the aim is to have full population coverage not for non-site specific symptoms fairly early on so that I I would see that as any symptom where you're not saying this patient has a breast lump so I'm going to refer them to breast no so anything where you're thinking is this upper GI or is it gynae yes they should be going to these clinics Um, and so that makes it a lot easier and 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 then the patients as I say with the vague symptoms and then the ones with the GP gut feeling and I don't know whether you've read about but that's really quite interesting it's really high that the GP gut feeling is really quite a high predictor of cancer Um, and for people like me it's quite reassuring that the older you are the higher the predictive factor yes yes so I was thinking well that's that's quite good and I think it's quite reassuring that actually if you see somebody and you're just thinking I'm just not happy this isn't right mm-hmm. you don't often feel like that do you so I think when you do you have to take it seriously yeah, yeah that's interesting and we've had some pilot clinics mm. and GPs and patients really like them yeah it sounds great yeah, it's, it's a really great. good idea yeah because yeah. um, I had a question um you've got the patient that comes in with the weight loss or the high platelets and you do a systems review and you end up with a couple of different things that are slightly worrying like they might have some prostatic symptoms and a bit of a long-term cough and maybe had a bit of change in bowel over the last few weeks and you just think oh but where am I going to send you the worry is that you're going to sit too long on one of the cancers that's going to have a chance to spread while you're trying to investigate the other ones and I think that's always the biggest concern but would the diagnostic centers help in this yes so what they tend to do is do an initial clinical assessment um hopefully the ble- gp's done the bloods before they go yeah um most of the patients will have a ct thorax abdo pelvis yeah so what they want to do is get to a yes no diagnosis of cancer yeah so if they feel then that the patient needs something else they will have it Brilliant. but on the whole you get to want to get to a yes no diagnosis very quickly yeah. and then most of the time it's that you can get patients can go back to the gp um that's lovely that's a really nice idea yeah yeah and um, so apart from the rapid diagnostic centers are there any other plans kind of coming in to try and kind of help with early diagnosis I mean, the, the lung health checks there have been a few pilots a few years ago big one in Manchester which had very great good results and showed that patients were picked up at stage one and two so the idea is that you invite the patients in a high risk group so ever smokers um, and the age range varies from pilot to pilot but roughly between about 55 and 60 and then about 75 um, and you do a risk assessment patients who are found to have a high risk then have a CT Mm -hmm. and the CT has then picked up some early stage cancers and the results of that have been very 
impressive. Um, so there's more pilots going on at the moment. There's about seven or eight across the UK and wow. that, that will help. As will bowel cancer screening, which we're still doing really badly on. Yeah. Um, I think different GPs have different views that as to how much we should get involved. But I think there's no harm in us doing what we can do to promote it. I tend to send, when I'm doing, now we're using the text system. Yes. I tend to, if I'm doing a repeat prescription and I notice that they haven't had the bowel cancer screening, I tend to send a text yeah. just saying, I notice you haven't had it this is the number and why don't you phone? Yeah, And they're yeah. probably more likely to if they're getting a direct message from a, yeah. a GP. Yeah, yeah. Th- there is evidence that various things that um, using GP headed notepaper can increase the uptake. GPs reminding people about screening improves things. It's not the whole answer to getting us up to the no. right levels, but it's part of it. And I think it's some bits of it are quite easy to do. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I'd noticed was um, the big push for patient education in terms of cancer symptoms. You see the billboards and the posters yes. and things up now about yeah. blood in your pee and yeah. all that kind of stuff there have been lots of different ones piloted and they do they do increase attendances the other thing that increases attendances is celebrities there was a big increase in cervical screening when Jay Goody died of yeah. cervical cancer yeah. Yeah. a good few years ago now and these sorts of things do help um, I think there's a patient on Coronation Street that that's had a little bit of a input as well and I know from listening to different podcasts on things that they're careful about getting patient input into the stories to try and make them as realistic, realistic as yeah. possible so um, I think celebrity publicity probably does work quite well more than the billboards but you can't yeah. leave it yeah yeah yeah, because it's more real then, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, you mentioned a few really interesting indicators, so the conversion rates for people with high platelets, and then also that GP gut feeling, um, which is interesting. Are there, are there other less known types of indicators for cancer? I think that people will always say that decreased appetite is more important than weight loss. Okay. Weight loss being a little bit vague. Not really. Most of them are things I think that you would know about. I think yeah. that you you tend to, you know, most of them are things that we've been taught since we were at medical school as things to be concerned about. Um, so weight loss, fatigue, um, yeah. mm. decreased appetite would be the only thing that maybe we should be asking about separately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And even just going through the kind of like getting a better understanding of that fatigue of that, you know, those yes, things. Yeah, as yeah. Well. I think it's deeper questioning on vague symptoms rather yeah. than more newer. symptoms. Yeah, yeah. newer symptoms. Yeah. 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 Uh, this was the only thing that that really struck me when I've been doing some of the work on Gateway C is the significance of headache in brain tumour. Um, yeah. And what they talk about um, indicator of brain tumour is headache plus. Um, so you're yes. talking about headache with something else neurological yeah. rather than, you know, a lot of patients with brain tumour will have a headache, but actually it's very rarely the presenting feature. And and, and most patients with brain tumour will either have a fit or a stroke and will present via A&E. The ones that come back and forth to the GPs tend to have headache plus. People who have increased number of accidents, um, falls or they trip over much or car accidents, people because they've lost some of their peripheral vision or something like that. There was a woman I spoke to who said that she um, hadn't quite realised, but whenever she was walking over uneven ground, she had to hold onto her husband's arm. It was a very subtle sign, but it was was just a a change in her neurological functioning rather than a headache Um, and odd smells and rapid onset dementia. But actually headache on its own is not something that we should worry too much about um there's a few patients that when i was thinking about kind of trying to diagnose cancer early some of the patients i worry about who've had bowel symptoms and they might be kind of 
more older patients and so change in bowel habit or some bleeding something's happening they've had it for a while or it's intermittent they've been previously investigated so their colonoscopy wasn't that long ago uh, and you're kind of stuck as a GP in this slightly difficult situation of wondering they've had some investigations they weren't that long ago maybe a year two years ago when then do we become less reassured and start re-referring it's a really difficult question but kind of I suppose any... you have to so what you want to get to is a fairly certain diagnosis of yes no cancer don't you yeah, yeah. Um, I think that a colonoscopy a year ago would be very reassuring if they, as long as they managed to get a good view and you've got that on the report that they mm-hmm. didn't only get halfway round or yes. something like that so that's a bit of a problem mm-hmm. I suppose the ones that I start to worry about are those patients who maybe have a pancreatic cancer or something like that something new which mm-hmm. might give you altered bowel symptoms and something yeah. different from what they've looked for so if they've not had a CT thorax abdopelvis then I might even re-refer somebody like that because actually there might be something else yeah Mm. so i think that is one of the things we talked about a little bit ago was an over-reliance on the wrong investigation yeah um so an ultrasound abdomen is not very good at looking for bowel cancer Mm. no but i I think that there is an over-reliance on something being negative yeah right yeah agree Um, but it does feel like it is a difficult balance to not under really, and over refer patients. It's impossible, isn't it? it? It is really difficult. And none of the guidelines cover those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Mm. yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? But how do you think we can improve the quality of our referrals? I think there's quite a variety of referrals that can come through to cancer um, from primary care. But actually, a lot of the guidance coming through now in terms of the early diagnosis is that we really should be doing some stuff before they get to that appointment. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. that there's no delay when they get there. They can have a CT because we've done renal bloods things yeah. like that um, yeah. and that can all help the diagnosis come a little bit earlier and even if it doesn't make a difference for outcomes it's better for the patient to know as soon as possible absolutely yes yeah. so we we've, we've, we did a whole module on improving the quality of referrals and I think that the things that are missing is that first of all that you've told the patient why they're coming because there's nothing worse than a patient turning up in their lunch hour um, brushing up back off to pick up kids from school or get back to work and then being told that you know, on their own that they've got a cancer diagnosis so I think oh. we really do have to tell them <laughs> then you know, I think that some indication of functional status and capacity okay, yeah. um, are really useful because, um, you know, the functional status will give you some idea as to what tests the patient could go straight to having done. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if a patient isn't able to give capacity for an investigation, that has implications for the clinic visit. Yeah. And then because I think it's also useful to give a little bit of context as to particularly if, if you're doing something, if you're doing something slightly off guidance, which is perfectly okay, mm-hmm. just to explain why you've done it. So if you're referring the 35-year-old to a bowel cancer clinic, but they've got three relatives who've died of bowel cancer, you need to put that in. Yeah. Um, you know, my husband's a radiologist, so I absolutely very good at this, but actually re- um, renal function for CT, they can't give the contrast if they haven't got the renal function. Mm-hmm. If they can't give the contrast contrast it's not as good quality ct and Mm. therefore you don't get the same same answer Mm. no i think the difficulty is sometimes that the forms can seem so complicated though some of those two-week wait forms in different areas that i've worked have just been like four pages and you just think where's the bit that i can put my information i think most of the specialists would say that actually what they value most is the free text box Mm. right so if you 
you can't find the right box then yeah. uh, or it doesn't quite fit in a box just yeah. free just text free text mm-hmm. it okay interesting Brilliant. and do you want to talk us through some good resources that we yeah. can use for both us and patients yes yeah, so, no, so I think that um, the major charities have great resources both um, CIUK and Macmillan have resources and personally I could just quite like going straight to the guidance page because I think I actually think that they're reasonably clearly presented and written so they're really useful if you're trying to get a sort of risk together there's the q cancer which is very much like q risk what what it's useful for is if you've got a patient with as we were talking about before with a variety of different symptoms you're not quite sure about you can put all of them into the calculator Mm. and it will come up with a risk and it'll say this patient has 2% risk of breast cancer, 1% risk of ovarian cancer, mm. 0.5% risk Ooh. of colorectal cancer. And it can help you just like triage. Decide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and think about, you know, is a 2% risk of breast cancer in an 85 year old significant you know so it's 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 quite that's quite a useful oh, tool yeah. um, I mean I think the safety netting toolkit is going to be invaluable to yeah, all of us very when we get, yeah I think that's mm. going to be really useful just for that safety netting of patients um, most areas have Cancer Research UK facilitators they are funded by CIUK and they their role is in early diagnosis so they'll come and they'll talk you through your data which will compare you with other practices in your CCG it'll mm. compare your CCG with the area with the country mm. you can see how you're doing on screening whether it's going up and down what your rate of early diagnosis is they also will do safety netting classes with uh, with the whole practice because obviously yeah. safety netting is a practice procedure rather than just a GP procedure if it's going to be done properly you need everybody ad- to know yeah you need the admin right. staff totally bought into it so they'll come and do that so most ccgs in the country do have a cruk facilitator the gateway c would be definitely be something that i would partly because i've been involved in it but it's it's a very different resource from this and it's a much more detailed resource on cancer overall but mostly cancer early diagnosis Mm -hmm. done via simulated consultations prescripted on patient stories but the consultations are performed by actors Um, and then we've got specialist interviews so what my role normally is is to do the interviewing (laughs) rather being interviewed so I've been interviewing lots of specialists and asking them all those questions like you're doing that you're thinking (laughs) I really want to know about that but I I can't find it anywhere or can you make this clearer or what things do you think GPs are missing and it's free to every primary care professional in England and it's lovely we've had a look at it and it's really easy to use and it's really clear and lovely it's a really brilliant resource so yeah we can yeah anybody who wants to register can do brilliant and we'll put a link to it we'll make sure everybody knows about it fabulous yeah lovely Um, so yeah is there anything that you kind of want to add or anything um, that you want people to take away from our chat today I suppose it's difficult um, but I think that it, when you're seeing patients that you're not quite sure about just ask that extra question like how much how much are you bleeding or how tired are you because it is difficult and you know, and you know it's not good it's not if it was easy as I say if it was easy then algorithms would work it out for us and it's not yeah exactly yeah. but no you've given us a load of brilliant information today so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us we thank really you. appreciate yeah, it thank you I really enjoyed um, recording this episode. I really kind of found some of the information useful that Sarah went through. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you take away, do you think? So I hadn't appreciated before she'd mentioned it about the wording of safety netting. I mm. tried to do more specific safety netting and sort of knew that it was important. But that point that she mentioned about the, the patient with the kind of, oh, if it gets worse, um, then come in. Yeah. And actually that being really important and also quantifying and kind of getting down into the nitty gritty of particular 
um, symptoms so the fatigue symptom and yes. really grading that exactly um, like what impact is it having just finding out that little bit more that tells you how significant is this and is yeah. this a normal a normal thing to be feeling yeah I loved the um three strikes and you're in for younger patients or patients with really non-specific symptoms um I know it can be really hard and but kind of that that prompt to investigate um, yeah exactly yeah. so the it's not really saying that it's to wait for three attendances to refer but more that if you've if you've gotten to the third consultation and you've not referred or you've not found a, a really good reason why you feel like this is going on that mm-hmm. should be a flag to you you should be thinking about referring yeah I think that was nice yeah um, that, that was a common theme from cases where it was younger patients with missed or missed opportunities yeah that just that extra highlighting and also that thing about um that uh, gp's sort of radar and that that, yeah, that feeling yeah, yeah yeah was quite a good thing sense. to trust yeah and I was really interested in the rapid diagnostic centers it feels like it has been a a missing element Mm -hmm. um like we said we talked about those patients where you just you just don't know what to do with them or they're so vague Mm -hmm. um it's perfect they just literally fill that gap so I'm gonna be quite excited to see those coming through yeah yeah Yeah. and yes when we mentioned about the um the Mm non-smokers um yeah yeah. um and the fact that um if you take those as a separate condition it's still a really significant amount of people um yeah so if you've been enjoying these episodes um thank you first of all and um you've got great taste (laughs) um but also um we'd be really grateful not just well the surveys are brilliant but um sharing sharing the fact that you like them with people and it's really nice that the word's spreading so just encouraging that that's wonderful to hear if you do like it just tell a friend (laughs) and and kind of spread the news as you know we've got other ways that you can contact us we've got twitter it's at pckb podcast that's our handle tweet us tell us what you're liking what you're not liking we love interacting with you all and we've also got our email address um which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and you can contact us on there if you've got anything you want to tell us about and as always we've got our survey um so if you can fill that in that'd be great it only takes about a minute and we'll put the link in the description as we usually do mm-hmm. till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.